Hey everyone, and welcome to the Between the Creations podcast. My name is Lorian Hook, and on each episode, I and my guests discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, culture, or the Bible. I'm so glad you decided to join us. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Between the Creations. I'm excited to have back with us Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who actually, I think now this is our third time to have you on, and you are now, you've now been on the podcast more than any other person. So, I mean, just, just a trailblazer, right and left. Um, if you haven't heard my previous two conversations with her, go back and listen to those whenever you get a chance. But let me introduce you guys to um, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. She is one of today's leading evangelical writers and commentators. She's an award-winning author of a book called On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, which I highly recommend. It's fantastic. She's a frequent speaker, a monthly columnist at Religion News Service, and she's also written for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Vox. She's a contributing editor for Comment, a founding member of The Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, and a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education. So she is a busy lady, is basically what that means, and also very, very uh, qualified to speak about all the things that we're going to talk about. And she has a new book called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Welcome back to the show. It is so good to have you on the episode today. Thanks for having me again. I, I What I remember most about talking with you is that you ask really great questions. Well, I mean, I hope I can keep that track record going. We'll see. <laughs> um, so this this new book, which is just fantastic, I, I can't recommend it enough, especially if you, like me, are someone who grew up in evangelical spaces or even inhabit them now. Um, the Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Would you kind of, uh, maybe by way of introducing the book, unpack a little bit of what you mean in your context of the book, which you do in the book, but for those who haven't read it, what do you mean when you're using the word evangelical? And then what do you mean when you're using the word imagination? Uh, because it's a great title, but I would love to kind of set some roots down in it for us to continue our conversation. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a good and important question because um, because a lot of people might hear the title, see the title, and think that I'm just you know I'm going to be talking a lot about you know um, the Chronicles of Narnia or Screw Tape and things like that, which um, you know nothing wrong with that. But what I'm really talking about, and then I'll get to the evangelical part, um, is um, the concept of um, social imaginaries, which are collective communal pools of, as the subtitle suggests, sort of the stories, images, metaphors, myths, legends that are part of our um, our imagination. But, you know, an imaginary is the shared one. Uh, and I can unpack that more later as we go along. Um, but I do know that the term evangelical is very contested and controversial and you know who is an evangelical am i an evangelical all those questions are being asked all the time and so i do sort of set down some of the basic um scholarly definitions that most people agree on um and of course i am also talking about the entire movement since its beginnings in the early 18th century in england and in um and then later in 
or, or close to actually the same time in America. Um, and so I'm not just talking about the evangelicals that make, you know, the headlines every election now. I'm talking about a 300-year-old movement um, that was, existed both inside the established church and outside it in England, was part of the Great Awakenings in America, and that, you know, by sort of the most agreed-upon definition given by David Bebbington, a, a famous church historian, um, I'm talking about a movement that is loosely you know, characterized by its emphasis on conversion, um, the Bible as God's authoritative word, the crucifixion of Christ and activism. That's called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. And that's sort of the agreed upon, you know, definition of what, who and what evangelicals have been for 300 years. Yeah, and you you mentioned in the book, I'm going to read a quote here as well. If you, I'm, I'm going to read several quotes, hopefully, um, because I, I just think it's so good. But you you talk about how a lot of maybe what we perceive to be, quote, evangelical, is has some really intense and deep roots um, with like Victorian England and like the Victorian period. And let me read this quote, and then I would love to have you kind of riff on that for a little bit, because I think that's a really important thing for us to realize. Um, and I would also love I'm just throwing out several questions, stream of consciousness. This is not good podcasting, but here it is. Um, I want us to come back and talk about social imaginaries as well, kind of Charles Taylor and the secular age and all of that. But let me read this quote first, firstly about, um, this is one of the quotes about Victorian times and such. You say, evangelicals simply breathed the same air that everyone else did. We still do. So much so that what evangelicals uncritically assume is, quote, biblical turns out to be simply Victorian. Can you kind of comment on that a little bit? Because I think that's a really important aspect um, that you bring out in the book that I think many of us would do well to kind of grasp a little bit better. Okay, so, and this is really kind of the origins of the book, was teaching Victorian literature in an evangelical context at an evangelical university for many years. Um, and so, and just to... to make it clear so that so the evangelical movement arose in the 18th century and in the 19th century uh which is when the victorian period is is when it kind of reached its peak so peak evangelicalism is you know the victorian age um so it it, it went you know it, it, a century before that and so far has been a century afterwards and victorianism is right in the middle um and so there's so much that evangelicalism brought to the world that is so good. Like that activist spirit that I talked about before is um, brought about so many um, of the reforms of the Victorian age, like, you know, reforms in um, labor for women and children, the abolition of slavery in, in England was, was, you know, not entirely, but very largely led by evangelicals. Um, and so a lot of the progress, the Victorian age is known as an age of progress because of those political and social reforms. And that was the evangelical spirit and emphasis on change and the importance and dignity of every individual. So that was a wonderful thing. Um, but then along with it came, you know, I, I like to quote the famous opening line from Charles Dickens to talk about the Victorian age. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right, right. <laughs> so there was this emphasis on um, on progress on the one hand, but part of that progress was a material progress. And so material progress allowed 
homes and families, to, you know, to be wealthier and more luxuriant and gave women the option of staying home instead of working, you know, in a cottage industry or in the factory. And so success came to be determined by sort of the elevation and even the the sort of leisure of women um, leading to the idea of the angel in the house, the angel of the house on a pedestal. And so women were sort of relegated to separate spheres. Um, and so the Victorian age is just so interesting. Again, I, I teach an entire course on it. And much of it is rooted in the ideals of evangelicalism for good and bad. And it was so influential that many of those ideas that inform evangelicalism, even in America today, actually come more through, they're filtered through the Victorian age more so than the Bible. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's just something that when I was teaching this literature to my students, sort of light bulbs started going on, especially when we would talk about purity culture and the sexual double standard um, between men and women of the time. And they felt like that was their lives. Um, and they were, they were raised in evangelical homes. And so that's when we started to try to together disentangle those things and where that question and that statement emerged. Right. And so, I mean, so many of the things that you talk about in the book resonated with me because, I mean, I grew up in evangelical spaces. I, I still inhabit those spaces. That's my predominant way of being in the world, especially when it comes to religious expression and Christianity. I mean, that's, that's the water I swim in. It's the air I breathe. Uh, although I do, you know, step out of that often into other, you know, streams of Christianity into other denominations that are not in any way, you know, as an, as evangelical as other spaces, but so many of the things you talk about in the book, I was like, yep, that was, that's been my experience. That's been my experience. Um, one of the things that, that I, I've since kind of just over time, but then your book kind of, kind of brought it to the surface more is a little bit of, maybe we can call it maybe we can call it a cognitive dissonance or something like that in evangelical spaces. And even I've sensed it in myself uh, where we are kind of taught through the system, through just this, this expression of, of the faith to be on the one hand, to be skeptical of um, emotions or over overly emoting uh, or of anything that isn't logical or that we can't think, you know, with our, you know, just our brains and we can reason and we can see even like something akin to like a scientific method. Like we can't research it enough or we can't see it laid out in the Bible. So that's one, one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is really this emphasis on these kind of personal experiences with God and these, you have your personal salvation and it's, you know, the Lord speaks to you and, you know, you, you feel your heart strangely warmed, right? And so um, how do you kind of process those two sides of what I see often in evangelical spaces that seem to not really connect and we seem to not be able to reconcile them without swinging a pendulum super far. Um, do you have any kind of thoughts on that or have you seen that type of thing at all? No, I mean, the way you describe it is obviously like a tension, even like a contradiction, really. But I think that the thing that, um, the, 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 that we can thread through this kind of consistent is the emphasis on the individual. Um, and so now the emphasis on the individual, again, evangelicals brought this about 
um, as I mentioned before, in a good way because they they believed in you know the need for each individual um, to have a conversion experience. Like you weren't just a Christian just because you were born to a Christian family, and we know that that's biblical. Um, that kind of emphasis on the individual leads also to an importance on individual experience, which is both a religious evangelical idea, but also an enlightenment one, right? Like, you, you know, how do you figure out if something is true or false? Or, you know, you just drop the apple and see if it falls. You know, you have that, you know, experience actually comes from the same word as experiment. Um, and so there is kind of a, a subjectivity to this you know, what we call the scientific method, because it's sort of individually verifiable. Um, and so I think it's the emphasis on the individual, which really is sort of the defining emphasis of modernity, um, that makes evangelicalism what it is for good and bad. And so, of course, we emphasize that personal relationship with Jesus, because we believe that each individual soul needs to have that encounter. Um, and that is by its very nature, a subjective experience. Um, and whether it's an emotional one or a rational one, um, rationalism and empiricism are both modern ways of knowing and they're both really individual. Um, and so that you know, so that's that's what evangelicalism is is, a, is an emphasis on the individual, um, and like everything else, it needs to be brought into balance with other tensions. That's I mean, that's why it's you know we have the church, right? Because uh, it's not just about our individual relationship with Jesus, and 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 that's how um, yeah, you know, that, that's how the entire uh, faith is set up from the Old Testament to the New is is both individual salvation, but in community. Yeah, another dichotomy that you bring up in the book is the idea of the sacred and the profane, uh, which I think is just really, really fascinating. And I'm going to read a quote so we can kind of, people can kind of follow along with the idea. Um, but you say, uh, our inherited dichotomy of the sacred versus the profane distorts our understanding of religious experience. It says the sacred profane dichotomy also privileges more cerebral abstract realms of religious experience, often the sort of experience that belongs to the elite, one that looks down on the more concrete earthly expressions of religious life. And it goes on, but I'll, I'll stop there. And I think that's really interesting because I see that a lot, uh, that concept of, of somehow the idea of the sacred and the profane. And, and there's this, kind of more, to call it an elitist approach to Christianity that is more cerebral. Um, so I'm, I'm on staff at a Presbyterian church, and that we, we have a reputation of being in our heads all the time and not being in our bodies, right? Um, and I, I appreciate how you, you kind of explore the idea of the sacred and the profane. Could you kind of unpack that a little bit for people who are maybe like, I have no idea what that means, or I've never heard that dichotomy before. Could you kind of unpack that a little bit um, and give us some insight into how that fits into the conversation at hand? Ooh, yeah, you, you um, centered in on, on a good one. I think that's in my chapter on uh, materiality. Um, and, you know, I wrote that whole chapter, not even just that section, that whole chapter was preaching to myself. 
Um, because the chapter before is about sentimentality, which I just love to poo-poo. Um, so I kind of <laughs> mock, I mock, you know, the Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers and junk that's at the stores because I think that it's so cheesy and cheap. And But then in my research and writing, you know, I encountered some great scholars who um, reminded me how important our material lives are. We are material beings. Um, the incarnation, you know, is a, an expression of God becoming human and material, physical, tangible. Um, and so, and I, you know, I prefer the cerebral over, you know, the material. So, but I, so I have to be reminded uh, of, of these things. And this dichotomy between the sacred and profane, we can find it actually, you know, is a feature of, you know, of the of the early and medieval Catholic Church, right? I mean, the priests were um, kind of in charge of the sacred. Uh, that's where we get the term laity. Those were those outside um, the sacred spaces. And then the Reformation came along and blurred those distinctions in, in a good way being it reminded us that you know that we're we're you know especially baptist my baptist tradition of the priesthood of all believers and that you know the home and work you know this is luther all of those things are um can are are, are ways that we can serve god um we don't have to be priests um and yet we're still influenced by that that dichotomy like so many, I mean, it's it, in in some ways it can also be like a form of um, it, it, there's a, a strain of um, Platonism that has existed throughout the church, and so that we see it more in evangelical spaces in the form of like having um, you know, especially in Christian institutions of higher learning, you'll often encounter like a, a spiritual emphasis week um, or an altar call for those who want to be missionaries, but not an altar call for the accountants, you know? Um, right. and so, <laughs> God bless the accountants. I need, I need right, them all. Right. I need, um, I need their help all the time. Yeah, all the time. And so we have our own ways of upholding this dichotomy between the sacred and the profane. And again, as a good Protestant, I mean, I'm Protestant on purpose. Um, this, this is, this does not come from our theology or doctrine. It's just something that we inherited and we don't always, um, we don't always catch or check. Protestant on purpose. That's great. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that before, but yeah. I'm, I mean, I, that I, might have to be the yeah. title of the episode. I don't know. There I mean, go. I got to yeah. put that somewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me, let me jump back. <laughs> Man, that's great. Let me, let me jump back to um, the idea of the social imaginary because I have just I've really noticed and I've I've you you referenced Charles Taylor. I did an interview, I think, with two other people recently, both of whom also referenced Charles Taylor, uh, a secular age and other and other books of his, which are profoundly helpful in really giving, I think, some background into some of the cause and effect of why we are the way we are today, which is basically what what you're doing in your book is really saying, here's here's why this has happened, here's why we are the way we are, here's why these terms or these ideas or this type of art has come in vogue and is now out of vogue and how we've processed all of those things. And I think Charles Taylor does that and help is helpful in that. But I've really become interested in the idea of really understanding the why. I feel I feel like and I, and I know there seems to be a, a larger group of people that's starting to move. I, it, it feels like we're all going back to reverting to being like three years old. You know, why, why, why? Um and I think that your book really helps do some of that. Um, 
So I want to ask a question that maybe I should have started with at the very beginning, and we've kind of explored it as we've gone, but was there really like a why for you for writing the book? Was there like some like thing that finally pushed you to where you're like, I need to say some things about this, or I feel called to say some things about these things, about, you know, these topics. Um, Like what's the why of the book for you? Because I think it gives a lot of whys, but is there like a bigger one, kind of like like a meta why, <laughs> the background um, driving kind of the conversation? Because I think it's such an important one, and I would love to hear from you kind of a little bit of the backstory of how the book came into being. Yeah, okay, no, that, you know, and, and for me, a, a book is something that germinates over a long time, so, um, and um, so there are probably a couple of, of things that 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 answer that question of the, of the why and the first one I've I already alluded to just sort of being in the classroom um, and teaching Victorian literature in particular and hearing my students and I talk about this in the introductory chapter here hearing my students who are brought up in evangelical subculture I mean I'm evangelical but I'm old so I, this stuff wasn't around like it just or I I grew up in the country you know I just wasn't immersed I think the subculture that emerged really in the even the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, that was so um, overwhelming and so pervasive. I I was already grown up by then, so I thank God for that. But my students, you know, they, they, who were just, um, um, and their parents who just bought all the books and the conferences and the seminars and the music and the t-shirts and um, around many things, but especially around purity culture, it was really in in teaching literature from the Victorian age that specifically dealt with either elevating women, like being the angel in the house, like, um, which I talk about. And then, um, as I mentioned before, the sexual double standard where a woman who, you know, was not, um, a virgin was considered ruined. Um, and a man, well, you know, it might not be so great, but he would, he would be okay. And, and, um, Tess of the Durbervilles is a book that I, that I teach every time I teach that period or teach the novel and I've edited an edition. Um, and that resonated with so many students that they are the ones who kind of said, wait a minute, this, you know, these principles that I've been taught, these ideas that I've been taught, they come from Victorian culture. They're not, not from the Bible. I mean, the Bible, they're Bible adjacent, <laughs> but they, you know, they're either distorted or misapplied or incomplete. And so I just, you know, I, I sat with that for a long time. I would say years, uh, sometimes would tweet about it, about the connections between evangelicalism and Victorianism and people, it really piqued their interest. Um, and then of course, um, I, the other, I don't know, let's see that that was, um, Hold on, I, I I lost my train of thought here. Happens um, to me every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you can edit this out. Oh, you were asking about the why. Okay, the the why. Yeah. Um. So that was one piece. I've been reading Charles Taylor for a long time. Um, a secular age, very concerned. You know, just thinking a lot about what constitutes secularity and then uh, modern social imaginaries. Uh, but I think the thing that pulled it all together in that area. Um, was the deconstruction movement that started a, a couple of years ago. Like, I mean, it probably started before, but it just really became, you know, prominent in social media and digital spaces, you know, two or three years ago. Um, and I realized that the people who are deconstructing, constructing, and I, I actually wrote an article about this at um, 
religion news service, I think two years ago, based on a real life experience of remodeling a bathroom um, <laughs> in our house, in which, you know, we're taking everything apart and discovering, oh, wait a minute, things are more rotten and in disrepair underneath there than we realized. And so that just really brought alive this idea of social imaginaries, which are kind of under the surface. We're not looking at them. We're just going merrily along and not examining the sort of underneath. Uh, and and all these people who are deconstructing or disentangling or whatever word they, they would use to describe that process are doing so because of that thing that I was experiencing in my Victorian literature class where the, the students are like, wait a minute, this is just a cultural idea um, that's been distorted from the biblical truth. And so, um, so those two things kind of came together. And I said, OK, I just really need to, un, you know, do a deep dive in this and unpack it. Right. The, the, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking of there's a there's a quote in Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, where he talks about he, he says something like, you know, when basically when when things are falling apart or when you don't know what to do or in the, this dad and his child, the characters in the in the book, they're just surviving. They're 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 not thriving. They're just purely surviving. And they're going through the motions of survival and, and Cormac writes something about, he's like, you know, what you do in those situations is you evoke the forms. Like he, and he says, you know, when you, when you have nothing else, you construct uh, ceremonies out of the air and you breathe upon them. And I think that a lot of us, I kept thinking about that quote when I was reading your book, because I think that a lot of us in just in, in life in general, regardless of if you're evangelical or not, we think that we've created what we have <laughs> We think that we've kind of breathed and evoked the forms and created this thing when in reality it's been handed down and handed down and handed down. And we've gone through all of these different types of iterations of it. And just like you were talking about, some of it's some of it's good. There there are some good, you know, there's some load-bearing walls. If we can you go back to that illustration. There's some load-bearing walls, but there also um, might be some termite damage, right? There might also be some uh, some rotting wood or something that needs to be taken out. And I I appreciate how you kind of are are nudging us towards hey we need to we need to do this and you you actually mention in the book you you say something about you know reformation and you, you talk about the reformation but then you're like it might be time for you know I you, you, I think you I can't I don't I can't find it right now but you say something about how you know there's probably another one coming soon <laughs> or some or some iteration of a reformation or some iteration of some major changes um, if you could offer some social commentary on what you think that might potentially look like. And we could listen to this three years from now and be like, man, we got that really wrong. Who knows? But but what are you sensing as you continue to talk with students, as you continue to engage in, in different evangelical spaces? What do you kind of see as you look ahead? Um, what might be some of those reforming type things that might be coming down the pike for us? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of big, big picture, um, you know, again, I, I'm sure more sure than not that I'll be wrong, but this is my best guess, is, um, you know, when I look back at the Reformation um, from 500 or so years ago, um, it really, you know, it, 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 it occurred for many reasons. I mean, there was corruption in the existing church, um, but there was also this amazing technology that came about called the printing press that allowed people to share ideas, right? Which was the, was so important because one one guy named Luther can see something wrong, but his ideas aren't going to necessarily get great circulation 
um, through the oral tradition. Uh, so the printing press allowed ideas to circulate about the Bible to be put in the hands of the people so they could read it for themselves and see what the Bible said instead of what, you know, a corrupt priest might have told them that it said. And so doctrine was clarified and refined. And that was that, I mean, that's really, I think, the essence of the Protestant Reformation. Well, now we have this new technology, another, you know, that allows us to share information more widely, more quickly. And I think, you know, by and large, um, the Reformation got the doctrine right, but it's our application and our behavior, um, you know, whether whether it's, in, you know, incorrect application or downright, you know, misbehavior that's that that we that could be done in secret because information wasn't traveling far and fast enough this new technology is allowing us to expose the wrong application of this doctrine and so if the first reformation was over orthodoxy um the one that i hope is coming might be over orthopraxy not that those could should ever be separated but we're only human and they are and so I, I hope that the sorting and sifting that we seem to be going through is going to bring up about uh, whether it's, you know, historians call it a reformation or something else, um, you know, just a better marriage between doctrine and practice that I, I think is where the first reformation just didn't quite finish the job yet. Yeah, you, you talk about... Um how evangelicalism really has pushed and emphasized the idea of conversion, uh, but maybe we haven't done super well on formation and on discipleship, you know, whatever word we want to use to to convey that. Let me read this quote real quick, and then I would love to kind of talk about this more. But you say, um, evangelicalism's long emphasis on conversion, its stadium-filled services, its emotional altar calls, its formulate prayers of salvation, leaves, li- leaves too little emphasis on formation, on sanctification. Personal salvation alone will not solve all problems personal and social, which I think is a great—that whole quote is fantastic. Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit more about kind of that the background of that, this idea of you know, the whole movement of, you know, revivals and of these, you know, Billy Graham conferences and of the, the, the Billy Graham crusades and all these things and this personal salvation, which again, we've, we've talked about already how that's important, but at the expense sometimes of formation and of d- discipleship towards something rather than just, oh, I, you know, pray to formulate prayer and now, I'm good to go, um, which really was, you know, a lot of what I heard in my childhood was pray this prayer so you don't go to hell when you die. Like that's kind of, you know, um, but not as much, you know, consistency with the, what happens after that. <laughs> no, I know. I just, I thought that I just, from five years old on, I thought, oh, I'm going to heaven when I die. Okay. <laughs> um, right. And that was it pretty much, you know. Um, but yeah, it was a long time before I really figured out there's a lot, whole lot of exciting stuff in between that's good and, you know, and uh, enriching and rewarding and hard. Um but yeah, I mean, yeah, here's the name again, evangelicalism. I mean, evangelism is spreading the good news, right? It's, it's making converts. And um, in the context in which the movement arose, that was necessary because there was a state church and, you know, you were considered a Christian at birth because you were born to Christian parents and you were a member of the state and of the, of the church. 
And so evangelicals emphasize this idea of conversion and spreading the good news, spreading the gospel, not only in their own nation, but as I talk about in another chapter, it was, you know, part and parcel of colonization and um, empire building. And, and it, it did spread the gospel, but it also was a good rationalization for, um, for uh, you know, imp- imposing governments on other people. Um, so that's a one access, but the one that you brought up is just, you know, the Bible doesn't just tell us to spread the good news. It also says go and make disciples. Um, and disciples are not just converts. Disciples are those who are instructed and taught um, and led and grown in uh, in the faith. And so, again, it's just a matter of, of, of balancing um, our energy, our time, our focus, um, you know, who I, I it's just very strange to me thinking now you know whoever thought it would mattered how many hands were raised in an auditorium you know like the whole counting. with everyone else's eyes closed that we gotta close your eyes yeah, somebody's counting right <laughs> right right <laughs> um i mean just that that emphasis on quantity over quality isn't biblical um at all it's, you know you can find some some stories in the bible that Point to say would say it's the opposite, but it's very American, very business, very capitalistic, very modern, um, and so you know we've been influenced by those you know, by the larger surrounding culture and the age in that regard than by the scriptures themselves. I would say, right? I one of the <laughs> one of the, the the highlights, the joys of the book for me is how you one titled the chapters. And then two, some of like the subheadings within the chapters. And I would just like to point out my favorite one. Uh, I don't have a question about it, but I mean, it's just, I just want to say it because it's fantastic. It's in your chapter on the rapture and, and end times theologies that have just permeated like so many evangelical children's nightmares, like of being left behind or of being, you know, of, of answering something wrong or am I am I really saved? Like, did, did I pray? Do I need to rededicate for the seventh time? I mean, all those things that so many of us who grew up evangelical just dealt with, but and we, maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but I want to, I want to read this. This is just a, a sub, like a section heading in this chapter. It said it's left behind on the late great planet earth after the thief in the night, which is, I mean, brilliant writing. I mean, absolutely brilliant writing just as a subtitle. <laughs> I saw that and I laughed so hard just to myself. Thankfully, no one was around to think I was odd. Um, but since it is such a um, hot button issue, in, especially in evangelical spaces, I, let, let's let's talk about it a little bit because you combine three things. You combine, you know, the the great left behind, not great, but I mean like you know just great in scope, uh, left behind series, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, and then thief in the night which you know terrifying in so many ways um for especially if you were young when you watched it or read any of those things um what kind of effects you talk about it in the book a little bit a little bit but what kind of effects did those things have on you personally as a child and then as a young adult and as an adult now um what what did that do to you and in you um when those things were first starting to come out and when you first started having experiences um in kind of in that that sphere Oh, that is such a good question. Um, and I probably have a lot to say on that. But I, I but since you brought up the, the headings, I also first want to say a couple things were going on there. Um, 
a lot of this book is heavy and deep and philosophical and historical and hard. I get it. I get it. Um, I'm not a, I wish, I wish I were a light, breezy writer whose writing was more enjoyable. Um, but I, you know, maybe I'll get there someday, but these are heavy. To, and so just for myself, I just start in the writing process. I just start going a little crazy. I'm like, I, I just have to add some levity here. And that, that's how the headlines or the subheadings emerge. But then as I was doing that, I realized that I'm actually modeling what I'm talking about because these phrases and these words and these images are in my head and they don't, they aren't, you know, they're not part of a linear logical progression. Uh, at first, they just emerge, and then they're like, "Oh, that's in there." So, what do I think about that? So, I'm actually kind of trying to model the way these songs and lyrics and phrases and ideas get get in our uh, social imaginary. So, that's what's going on there. How it affected me? Oh my goodness! So, I just, you know, I did not realize real. I mean, I've known it my whole life, but writing this chapter actually made me realize how much growing up in this sort of rapture culture affected me. Now, I do want to say that I am not a trained theologian or a biblical scholar in any area, especially this one. So I do not have uh, a formal eschatology. Uh, I don't, and I say in the book, I don't even actually care. So that's actually one effect is that I was just so turned off by the emphasis on end times. Um, that I, and I probably should care. And I know I'm thankful there are people who care and who've studied it, but I'm just turned off by it. Um, because, uh, you know, because I, of, I think it's just been an, an excessive emphasis. Um, the other thing is just, and, and again, writing in the process of writing this book, I realized that I realized that I really thought we were going to see our lives played in front of us in heaven on a movie screen because of yes, the chick Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I actually, just so you know, I bought, you can find the chick tracks. I ordered like a pack of 50 on Amazon just to refresh my memory um, as I was going through this. And, and those images, as soon as I saw some of those images, it was like I had seen them yesterday. Right. Same thing with Thief in the Night. I rewatched it um, for this. And it was, as the, I mean, I thought when I was very young, I, I think I only saw it once, but it was like, it was yesterday when I watched it and it was terrifying. Um, so there, so that helped, that reminded me of everything I've been saying in this book, that these things are in, they're under the surface, they're in there and they have an effect on us, whether we realize it or not. And then I would just say, you know, it just, um, it, this is less personal, but I, I unpack it a little bit. I mean, there are political and sociological and theological implications for what we believe about the rapture. Um, and 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 so many of those have played out really in right wing and Republican politics, and not just since 2016. I I learned in doing the research for this book, and I mean again, I'm late to the party. Um, you know that it goes all the way back to you know the Billy Graham and Reagan and Nixon, and I just didn't really realize that. Um, I was I was to use the vernacular of the youths today. I was shook. When I read in your book, because I didn't realize this, how late in time the phrase in God we trust came into our, I was, I was shook. When, when I learned it, which I think I mentioned in the book, I don't remember when it was, but I was, I, I was, you know, an adult, an older You're in like adult. Jimmy Carter uh, or something like that, maybe? Yeah, I mean, yeah, late. I, uh, it maybe was, Eisenhower. Uh, it was Eisenhower. No, Eisenhower, I, yeah. I, I, 
as a I, as a child, I literally thought like this was on the currency since the founding of America. And and when I learned it, that's when some of the the cracks in my you know in my cultural faith started to to um, form because I just didn't know how political that was. Right. Right. No, it, that shocked me. I didn't. I didn't know that, but I had. I learned I learned so many things. So I, I'm a child of the 90s, and I I was in private school um, growing up for element, elementary through high school. And my fifth grade Bible teacher told us that Vladimir Putin was the Antichrist and that, you know, credit cards were, were, were the mark of the beast. So, I mean, it was in our vernacular. Like, it was part of, you know, growing up. And I look back on that now, and I'm like, man— no wonder we all had nightmares and were, you know, deathly afraid of the book of Revelation and had really bad theology when it came to a lot of things. But it was it was part of the social construct of so much. And I think you you handle that in the chapter really well and kind of shine some lights on it. So it's that chapter alone, I think, is worth the price of admission. <laughs> oh, that's actually good to hear, because that was probably that whole section, because I'm not like I'm not a historian and I don't like politics. So that, so that one was actually hard for me. There's so and there's so much there's so much good work being done there. Um, and of course, I you know have endnotes. You can look up my sources and there are those are entire books and there's much more than I uh, included. Um, so again, I feel like, you know, the scholars have been doing this and saying this, and I'm just like late to the party, but I'm writing for people who like me might be late to the party and asking these questions because we're all learning, right. right? We're all just, we're all learning. Yes. Yes. Um, well, let me, let me kind of help us land the plane a little bit. Let me ask you, uh, I have two more questions. One is about, um, just kind of work that you, anything that you have upcoming that you want people to know about kind of coming, coming, you know, in the future. Um, and the other one is, and maybe you don't have an answer to this question, but it's a fun question to ask. I know that you, as this book is getting ready and, and is launching into the world, which is just a whole process in and of itself, you've done countless podcast interviews and different, different engagements and stuff. And I'm sure you have, I'm sure your calendar is booked, uh, in the coming weeks and months as well. But as you've done several conversations and had several, you know, interviews and stuff about the book, is there a question, um, or something about the book that people haven't brought up as much that you wish that you, you're like, I kind of want to talk about that. And no one's really asked me. Um, is there anything like that? And there might not be, but I want to give you a chance. No, there to, is. There is. Yeah, there is. Okay. Um, so um, the cover is supposed to be kitschy. I've had uh, numerous messages of concern um, about what's happened to my taste um, or people sort of, I, there was a Facebook exchange that it kind of had two parts where a person said, when the when I first revealed the cover and the person posted on Facebook, just someone I know from social media, not someone I know. And she said, uh, did you have any input on the cover? And I said, yes. And that was the end of the conversation until recently when someone else commented about the irony of the cover. And I said, Oh yeah, thanks for getting it. And that same person said, Oh, when I asked you about it, all you said was yes. And I just didn't want to say anything anymore. <laughs> so, um, and if you read, right. you know, it, it, when I re revealed the cover, obviously people hadn't read the book, but if you read, read the book and the chapter on sentimentality and the section, mm -hmm. I, um, then hopefully it becomes clear. Um, so yeah, I, it's just, you know, um, it, it's just a, 
yeah, it, it evokes so many things, but other people really like, like they get it and they, they love the cover and it really grabs. Oh, I think it's, so, I think yeah. it's fantastic. I mean, for listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, first of all, just go buy the book. But second of all, if, if you haven't seen it, it's like neon colors and bright. And then this little picture of like Jesus as the good shepherd with the halo around like white Jesus with the halo around his head. Yeah. And it's, it's kitschy and fun and everything that you've probably, you, you might have this painting in your home right now or grew up with it in your grandmother's home. Who knows? But it's very, uh, it's no very shade. fun. No, it, no shade. No shade. Too. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, but do you have any, um, projects or, or things coming up that you want the people to know about? Well, I am going to, uh, depending on when this airs, I will have just done it or be just about to do it is to start a, a newsletter on Substack. Um, and um, I would love for people to visit that. I am, you know, basically making a transition um, as this book comes out into writing full time. And so, um, yeah, so people buying the book and subscribing to my newsletter matters much more than I, than I realized it would. And so we'll see if I can uh, make a go of that. I'm, I'm actually really excited about that. I'm scared, but um, that's what I have going on. Right. And you guys can uh, follow uh, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor on the socials and I'll put that in the show notes. So go give her a follow, buy the book, buy all of her other books get get on Substack. If you don't know what that is, ask a young person. They will they will happily tell you. I had to be told what it was and I'm not really that old. So it's great. It's a great platform. It's it's not social media-ish. It's just good articles, good writing that's coming out from people and you can subscribe and follow them. So thank you so much for your time. It was good to talk to you and uh, cheers to, to the book being out in the world almost. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Yeah. And for those of you listening, make sure that you have subscribed and rate, review, all those things that all the podcasters in your life beg you to do. It really does help us out. And we will see you next week. Or not see you. We'll, you'll hear me next week, I guess, is really what it's more like on podcasting. But until then, uh, take care, and we will be back later. <laughs>